0: Welcome to another episode of Class of India. In this episode, we'll be talking a little bit about Hinduism and Hindutva. To talk about it, we are joined by Joel Bordeaux. Joel is a visiting scholar at Matto Center uh, for India Studies, uh, Stony Brook University. He is a specialist in Bengali Shakta traditions, and he's also interested in sacrifice, uh, ritual magic, literary exegesis, and Hindu-Buddhist interactions. Welcome to the podcast, Joel.
1: Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so the first question, I mean, I mean the most basic questions I generally have is uh, how do we distinguish between hinduism and hindutva and you know what what is that you know uh, the differentiating factors that we can you know say that okay this is hinduism or you know this is hindutva
1: right um, so uh, that's a that is a very complex question as i'm sure you as i'm sure you know um, i think uh, you know Scholars uh, at this point are still debating and have been for a while exactly how to define uh, Hinduism. Um, but Hindutva is, is a somewhat easier uh, lift there. So, um, you know, I think we can say um, the Hindutva, generally speaking, you know, we're talking about um, a project, uh, a political project more so than a uh, religious uh, formation, which is how we would tend to think of Hinduism. Um, and to that, I, I would add a third category, actually, which I think is, you know, Hindu, which we have to think of as a, a potentially a distinguishable thing there. Um, so we'll circle back to that in a second. But, but Hindu you know, um, if we if we go with the, uh, you know, Savarka's uh, definition anyway, um, as the, you know, the not the first person to use the term, but the um, the most famous uh, kind of foundational figure, you know, he's talking about a, a project that says, you know, that, you uh, for him, and mind you, he was not a, re- a particularly religious uh, person. But uh, Savarkar says that you know, Hindu is a person who regards India as the fatherland and is a holy land, and that's that's it for him. Um, so you know, one striking thing about that, you know, it's it's a definition that's essentially meant to uh, exclude uh, people like uh, basically like Christians and Muslims, right? Okay. Because uh, India is the fatherland and holy land. Um, and he acknowledges this as well. Uh, you know that includes six Jains, Buddhists, uh, you know any number of other groups, uh, you know Lingayats and things like that, um, who uh, would uh, even under sort of the uh, current uh, legal structures in India not uh, regard themselves as Hindu, or who might not even be regarded as Hindu, strictly speaking, according to uh, according to the law. So I mean, for uh, for Hindu in this case, I mean, I think. Um, what we're talking about it is a, um, it's a political project. Um, and it's, it's one that's meant to emphasize the, uh, a perceived majority, um, of people, uh, for whom, um, it, there is a, a, a common core of, um, of a kind of a, a religiously tinted kind of patriotism in a way, basically. Um, if you put it in terms of the, you know, the RSS and the kind of, um, you know the Sang uh, Parivar approach to this. You know it's it's about uh, making uh, politics more Hindu and making Hinduism more political. Okay. So I think we can set Hindu thought one, uh, on one side as essentially a, a political project, um, and then Hinduism itself. Uh, well, it's 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 hard to define, right? There um, there are definitions that um, you know we could uh, we could go to someone like Tilak. Um, who Svarkar, you know, himself cites. Um, where Tillich says, you know, um, it means the the belief in the Vedas, um, and beyond that, uh, that there are there are many ways of of practicing, and and no strict rules in terms of no ortho uh, orthopraxy. Um, so, I mean, that could be one way of of trying to approach it that people have have often suggested. Um, you know, these sort of the old uh nastika sort of distinction that you find in um in classical uh, hindu philosophy but uh where you say you know the vedas and sort of some kind of reincarnation rebirth uh karma that that kind of notion uh, if you if you buy into those things as um the vedas are authoritative in some sense and um yeah. you know and from that flows the um the kind of upanishadic ideas about uh, rebirth and then that would um that would make you a Hindu by some definitions. You know the trouble with that, I think, is you know um, there are there are groups who don't believe in uh, in rebirth, right? There are plenty of uh, groups um, throughout uh, the history of India who people would want to probably regard as Hindu um, that don't. You know maybe they give nominal uh, credence to the idea of that the Vedas are authoritative, but um, in practice they, they don't really care much about that. Um, I think that's true even a lot of a lot of people today. Um, you know, I think there's there's a way in which uh, Hinduism, you know, from my point of view, you know, as an outsider, it's very easy to say Hinduism is just what whatever Hindus do um, and not to get too hung up on trying to define it by any any set of traits other than just sort of uh, looking at descriptively, you know, what, what people actually do. But, uh, you know, the problem with that, as I suggested earlier, is that, um, you know, Hindu also has this, this sense is a basic kind of, um, you know, you can be an atheist, non-practicing Hindu, right? You can be from a, a communist family and, and never have, you know, been to a temple a day in your life or never have, uh, you know, said a, a mantra or, or done any of these kinds of practices. But if your name is, you know, Radhakrishnan, then, then society will perceive you as Hindu and there's no, there's no getting out of it, um, you know, in the same way that if your name is Hussein, you're Muslim and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, actually an atheist or, or what your personal beliefs are. So I mean, uh-huh. it, yeah, so defining Hinduism, I think, is, is something of a, um, is a much more com- complex question than defining Hindutva. Okay.
0: You spoke about the Hindu identity. Uh, so I was wondering, how is it characterized? Uh, is it based on being a non-Muslim or a non-Christian, um, you know, not being, being not someone else? And, uh, and also, how modern is the Hindu identity? Is it something evolved during the British colonial times? Or was it before that, you know, just before that?
1: right um so this too is a is a continuing uh, debate um and i'm I'm liable to run afoul of um <laughs> of uh, of even my own opinions here um that is to say uh i'm i'm of two minds about this uh depending on on how precise we want to be in uh in what we mean by identity and and how we define these things but um, there are people who make the case that Hinduism, as we think of it now, Hinduism as a kind of world religion um, with the, with central texts like the Vedas and the uh, the Gita, um, and a, a strong sort of emphasis on uh, Advaita Vedanta uh, as this kind of most uh, prestigious um, philosophical school. Um, the basically, essentially, the kinds of things that you get from someone like uh, Vivekananda. Um, that form of Hinduism is essentially a, um, a product of, um, the, an early modern, uh, you know, 19th century kind of, uh, move. You know, we find that the word Hinduism itself, you know, with that sort of Greek suffix ism, um, is, is something that we don't actually see until, um, the late 18th century, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, because why would people in India have been using words with, you know, Greek suffixes, um, you know, before uh, the introduction of, uh, you know, these languages, you know, so that's, that's one thing. And I think there's a, there's a case to be made for that. And, and to, to think of it in those terms, you know, is also to say that we have to take into account the, the people who were um, the interlocutors with, uh, with people like William Jones or, you know, Mornay Williams or these figures um, who were influential in kind of putting some of these ideas together that, that you know, Ram Roy Roy, Vivekananda, these people were responding to. um but uh so that's one thing you know on the other side of it though um there's a good case to be made um from the other side that says that people had some kind of a, a self-understanding of uh of Hindus as a group distinct from you know a them uh, in this case where the them uh, happens to be Muslims although they weren't necessarily um, usually called Muslims at the time. The the text will refer to them as you know Turks or that is to say Turushka or Yavana, uh, sort of Ionians or something like that. Occasionally you find patans or something as a um the sort of ethnic uh markers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the people uh you know in not so much in Sanskrit literature but in um in uh, early modern um forms of uh, Hindi and things like that. Um, that there is a sense um, that there is uh, an us, uh, a, you know, essentially around the time that uh, there starts to be a them. So around the time that you find, uh, you know, larger populations of Muslims in the subcontinent that people um, begin, as you might expect, to, yeah. to suddenly have a sense of, okay, well, now there's some kind of a difference. Where before the salient differences might have been, you know, we're Vaishnavs and those people over there are Shakto or... Shaqto, or um, you know, we are we're Shrauto, and and those people over there are you know Dalits or something, right? That's uh, that those were going to be the more meaningful distinctions. Once you have a group of people, um, you know, professing something that is you know markedly different, um, that that or that's different in 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 ways that they would say, okay, well actually we have, you know, we participate in image worship, and those people say that's not okay, or we believe in rebirth, and those people say you only live once, and there's a judgment. Um, and so you do start to see you know some clear sense during that. Um, that time period, and, and David Lawrence and others have written uh, about these kinds of um, these texts that say, you know, once you get outside of a, the Sanskrit uh, milieu, which tends to essentially ignore these things as much as it can, um, there is a, there's a pretty clear sense that people have a, a notion of um, of Hindu, and how we define it and, and what the, the boundaries are around it is a little um, murkier. But, uh, you know, Andrew Nicholson also, there's a book called uh, Unifying Hinduism, where he looks at this from a philosophical standpoint and and says essentially that um, he thinks there's a proto-Hindu philosophical sort of consensus that comes in uh, somewhere in the 15th to 16th century, you know, around uh, figures like the Bhikshu. um, That, you know, it's a Vedantic, uh, it's Vedanta and Sankhya and yoga sort of um, synthesized in a way, but actually Strikingly, it's actually not so much uh, Advaita Vedanta, um, but so th- there are there are waypoints that that one could easily point to before the advent of the sort of colonial so-called colonial construction of Hinduism that seem to pretty clearly indicate that in fact um, these ideas you know they didn't just spring out of nowhere there were there was a development um, you know essentially from the uh, the late medieval period um, and a gradual sort of coalescing of um, of a sense of you know these communities having something in common beyond um, the, the the specific kind of regional formations. Okay. Now, me personally, I tend to I tend to emphasize the regional formations because, well, you know, uh, you know, it's just a it's a, a bias on my part. It's a cognitive bias where I find the differences slightly more interesting often than the um than the overarching narratives. You know, so I tend to look at Bengal and. And find it more interesting when you find things like Gaudiya Vaishnava, like Chaitanya Vaishnava texts. Um, early Chaitanya Vaishnava texts that use Hindu to talk about, um, you know, they distinguish themselves from that. And so they, in, in some of these texts, they, they don't think of themselves. Uh, these early Vaishnava uh, movement, uh, Chaitanya Vaishnava movement in Miguel, they they don't appear to think of themselves as Hindus. But they talk about the other groups as Hindus. And Hindus are those people over there who are essentially... Um, you know, pushing uh, dharma, and, and usually they're shakto and so that also means they're doing sacrifices and things that we don't approve of. And so like there are ways in which, you know, if you go back, you can read against the grain in some of these cases and find uses of Hindu or even of Hindutva um, in some of these texts um, that are strikingly different from what we see now. Um, so, you know, modern Hindutva is, is very, um, is very much less sort of uh focused on things like caste um than you might find in some earlier uh, uses of the term so you know there's a text from um, the early 19th century um a bengali text uh, that i've looked at a bit that uses hindutva but it, you know hindutva essentially to mean uh, and they gloss it themselves as essentially meaning you know um our sort of uh or jat and you know jat karma so you know that's that would be really antithetical to modern hindutva right they don't want to um it's that would be that would go against the whole unifying um thrust of it nowadays
0: yeah 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 so it's like one of the questions i had was what would be like a unifying factor across the country uh, with you know with practices ranging from different castes and you know different regions but then you know uh, i think you, as you said it's depends on region to region right
1: yeah i mean i think it's what you want to emphasize and you know at what level um you know, at how granular do you want to get um, in terms of making those emphases? You know, but this is, uh, you know, this is built in too. Also, from an from an early stage, you know, India has, you know, for a very very long time, for millennia, you know, perhaps even uh, been a, a very sort of self consciously pluralistic society. So you know, even in the Dharmashastras they they say, you know, if well, what is, what is your Dharma, right? And so Dharma is probably a, about as close as we get to some kind of a notion of religion. And that would map in this case to something that we would think of as, you know, anachronistically as being, um, you know, a kind of Hindu religion. You know, well, your Dharma, sure, it, it relies on things like, you know, the, the Sruti and the Smriti, right? You have these, um, these sacred texts, but it also depends uh, heavily on, you know, what is the, what's the behavior of, um, you know, of well-regarded people um, in the particular area where you live. So it depends on, you know, where you are. Um, you know, there's this sort of, um, this framed as kind of the deshachara, right? So it's the it's how, how proper people behave in the particular desh where you live. Um, and that would be, you know, that's a regional construct in these cases. Uh, we can see clearly by how it's uh, applied, you know, and then also upon one's own conscience and things like that. So, you know, even from these early stages, you know, the the, the writers in the you know um, in the Tanmashastras were were very aware of this kind of regional difference, and and sort of, in some ways, you know, this is sort of Tilak's point, uh, the the understanding that there's going to be a difference in practice in different regions, you know, is arguably a defining feature. Okay. And, and maybe that's a thing that is that is fairly unique to a. Um, or at least if not unique um, is something that the Hindu traditions make much more explicit perhaps than, um, than a lot of other um, traditions that people might be familiar with just to sort of, to, to foreground that and say, well, yeah, you know, of course it's different. You know, what you do in Kerala is going to be different from what happens in Gujarat and and everybody knows that and everybody's okay with that.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so, so does it mean that, you know, because Hindu has much more uh, uh, strict guidelines, you can say, you know, uh, and how is that important to distinguish between the pluralistic aspect of the, you know, the traditions, you know, the Arabic traditions or, you know, you can say it, Hinduism with the way, you know, Hindutva is, Hindutva wants to be perceived. Like, how do you think, why do you, uh, is it important, you know, it, is it quite useful for, for us to distinguish so that, you know, Hindutva as, you know, it doesn't become just a only force remaining, you know, in the country or in the
1: regions? Yeah, I certainly, I think it's important. I mean, I, I try to, um, I mean, and again, you know, as an outsider, but as someone who, who you know, teaches about these traditions and, um, you know, and, and who has, uh, you know, many, many Hindu friends, um, you know, I think it's important to, to distinguish between, um, you know, in this case, as in many others, between these sort of overt political manifestations um, that are, uh, that we have, you know, sort of currently um, as important as they are um and and the traditions broadly construed um because you know lots of people who are, are Hindus uh, have want nothing to do with hindutva right and and conversely in many ways you know um lots of people who are invested in hindutva maybe they're not so interested in um in what people like me would would tend to think of as being uh, you know the important things about hinduism per se
0: yeah um
1: so it, it's in the same way that you know um I think it's important for, you know, a lot of, you know, Christians in the United States, they don't want to be associated with the sort of right wing, um, the very kind of nationalistic version of Christianity that that has a very powerful voice and is very sort of politically influential here. But, um, you know, that's not the only way um, to practice the religion. In fact, you know, it's kind of in many ways, um, from my point of view, the whole point of religions is that uh, people have these, um, you know, kind of a set of a grammar of a uh, so to speak, of a tradition that, that they can recombine in their own ways and use it to make meaning of their lives at different points. And uh, the political version of it, you know, is uh, is nailing some of these things down and marking off strict boundaries as a way to sort of organize people to a particular political end. And that's um, you know, that's a very uh, different project altogether. So I think, yeah, I think it, I think it's very important to distinguish the two. Um, I think also because then it allows us, you know, as you, um, yeah, as you've noted, I think that there's a tendency um, for people, especially on the sort of Hindutva side of the aisle uh, to collapse these categories and to say, well, if you, if you criticize Hindutva, you're actually criticizing, you know, the whole of sort of, you know, classical Indian thought and, you know, Mm -hmm. you must not, uh, if you criticize, you know, Modi, then somehow that means that you... Um, you don't find you know rock cut temples beautiful or something right because those were you know Hindus made those, and so um, you know that, that sort of there's a slippage there that um, that I think is uh, is misleading and and sort of um, and that people uh, would do well to sort of interrogate. Uh, in the same way that people, you know, in the in the states would say, you know, if you you can't be a good Christian if you don't support, you know, the our particular current president. Well, that's of course it's nonsense. Yeah. Lots of people, lots of people um, from uh, various, you know, sort of political persuasions um, adhere to different uh, religions, and you can't uh, collapse a religion into one particular point, uh, political point of view.
0: Okay. So so another thing, like uh, you said that kind of Hindutva is a reaction to the others, right? Like the whole identity and also the Hindutva as a political project is also kind of a reaction to others along with, uh, you know, a notion of unity among, you know, a people from this particular region, right? So I was wondering mm-hmm. how much of that is uh, leading, you know, Hindutva to go towards uh, you know, go, go become like the Abrahamic religions, like you mentioned, like you know, how, how much of that is like a, a race towards you know, gaining numbers, as you you know, mentioned once.
1: Hmm. Um, well, I'm not sure that I, um, that I would be in, I'm not in a particular, it doesn't suit my own interests, I should say, to be as partic- you know, perfectly transparent about it. Um, to to want to characterize you know the so-called Abrahamic traditions as either as having you know one particular way of dealing uh, with these things um, mm-hmm. you know, the Judaism for instance had has no particular uh, demonstrated interest in converting people you know and uh, for instance and you know there are many ways in, in which again you know um, you know Christians and Muslims and and so forth um, approach these uh and historically, have approached these questions very uh, with very distinct um, points of view towards uh, that are that do not fit sort of contemporary narratives. But um, I think for sure, you know, the the project of Hindutva as as conceived by um, uh, Savarkar and, and his sort of uh, descendants, as it were, um, is one um, designed uh, explicitly to sort of create a, a sense of a majority. Um, out of uh, something that at the time uh, may have seemed more fragmented. So again, not not only with the sense of um, expanding the category of Hindus such that it would include six chains, Virashivas, and so forth and so on, um, Buddhists, and uh, basically everyone that doesn't explicitly profess uh, Christianity or Islam or something. Um, but, so I think that is a that is a clear thrust of what. Um, what Savarkar had in mind you know and you do see this in many ways uh it's kind of built into the way that things like the census uh, works as I understand it in India which is that sort of Hindu is the default setting right so unless you explicitly say like no I'm a Parsi or no I'm I'm some other you know unless you mark down something else you you get sort of lumped in uh when people quote statistics that say things like well you know India is 80 percent Hindu well you know how much of that, how many of those 80% of people are, you know, Alivasis or something who, you know, they don't really, if, if you went, you know, and hung out with them, you would not necessarily think that what they're doing is practicing, uh, Hinduism, um, in, in the way that you, that's commonly understood. Yes,
0: um, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. So partially, I think it is, for, it's for sure about swelling numbers, but it's also about, um, you know, creating a, a sort of a unified, um, political consciousness. Um, And that, you know, uh, as you suggest, I think explicitly with the goal um, in, you know, Savarkar's early writings anyway, more explicitly with the goal of sort of opposing the the British. Um, But, you know, as time goes by, you know, he shifts that more to thinking about it in terms of Muslims, but um, as some kind of, you know, quote unquote, uh, foreign group um, who doesn't regard uh, India as the Holy Land, and therefore somehow they're um, their fundamental sort of religious allegiance is somewhere else, whether that's in the Middle East or whether it's Rome or, you know, the, um, you know, whether it's Mecca, or Jerusalem or Rome, so forth. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's it's explicitly a project, I think, about um, creating a, a, a kind of unity that can be um, put to political ends. Okay. So and what you do with those ends is a different, you know, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, you know, it could be a right-wing or a left-wing type project, in theory, Once, if you get past the notion that that you start off by excluding large chunks of the population based on their religious beliefs. So okay. that is to say, it could have developed somewhat differently than it has. It doesn't have to be pa- paired with sort of neoliberal economics and things uh, in the way that it, um, that it sort of has developed uh, over the course of the, you know, the 90s in India. Okay, okay. Mm. I mean, I was actually
0: uh, trying to uh, compare with the Buddhism in Sri Lanka and, you know, how they have uh, kind of uh, appropriated a lot, lot of castes and, you know, kind of, and to, to make sure that, you know, there's a unified uh, uh, unified force against the Tamils, for example. You know, is it like I was wondering if that's that's the uh, future, that's, that's the way, the, that's a part of Hindutva.
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Uh... I mean, it's the present, um, perhaps more so than the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, in in Sri Lanka, there's a, you know, if you look the at the contemporary situation, you know, it's it's much less. Uh, the groups like the the Sena and things like that, they're much less focused on you know on tunnels uh, now than you know um, than Christians and Muslims, much as uh, much as the situation is uh, in India. So contemporary, you know, uh, Buddhist nationalism. Uh, in Sri Lanka, also you see this kind of thing in Burma, um, mm-hmm. very much um, focused on, you know, on the Muslim populations and, and the Christian populations as well, where, they're, uh, where they have them more so than uh, the the issues with the Tamils, which, you know, is far from my area of expertise. But my sense of that, at least initially, was it was somewhat more of a um, linguistic, uh, ethno-linguistic kind of an issue than it was. Specifically, a um, built around a, a religious identity in the way that the, the current uh, iteration of um, like Sinhala yeah. Buddhist nationalism is.
0: Yeah. So I was I was also going to ask you about the regressive practices in you know in in Hinduism. You know, again, the thing is, uh, is it is it uh, like like for example, when you uh, point out or uh, when you talk about the regressive uh, practices in say. Islam or you know or in Christianity you know you talk about like you know it's written in the scriptures you know you go back to that point you know that okay the scriptures have been there and you know you have to reform based on that and all like do we do the similar thing in terms of Hinduism or you know it's it's a you know it's a result of different social and cultural and you know economic situations over the years you know to deal with those regressive practices.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think I think two things. One, I think uh, it is also the case in you know, d- despite the sort of uh, rhetoric in uh, Islam, perhaps that you know we can um, within some sections of Islam, maybe this kind of particular one that's favored by the Saudis and things at the moment, of sort of basing um, allegedly everything on the Quran or, or you know rhetoric within certain forms of uh, Protestant Christianity of, of everything's based on the Bible. You know what in practice people do is of course the they interpret it according to a, a tradition of interpretation and that means there's hadith and there's all kinds of jurisprudence and and these are as, as soon as you get into that you get into regional um traditions so i mean i'm, I'm a big proponent of this of the notion that actually everything is a is a regional tradition if you sort of zoom in on it to see what exactly people are doing um but you know i think there are people who have who have tried to do this sort of thing um in, in some Hindu contexts, you know, the, the problem is, again, um, you know, the, it's which dharma Shastra, you know, or which sort of legal tradition do you subscribe to or, um, you know, what are, which sources of authority um, do you credit? And so I think uh, sometimes it's textual, but, you know, in other cases, um, you know, I, I can think particularly of, um, you know, the famous sort of uh, widow marriage um debates that, that happened in, um, in Bengal, you know, um, those happened also um, in almost the, uh, the same terms. Um, they happened back uh, in the middle of the uh, 18th century. So, you know, um, and at the time, people made the same arguments, um, that is to say, or very similar arguments that based on Dharmashastra to, to sort of uh, make the case that it was permissible for, for a widow um, to remarry, at least under certain circumstances. And, and the way it seems to have been shot down was by appeal to um, Deshachara, to, to basically that the, um, the winning faction at that point in the 18th century anyway, um, they said, okay, look, it's fine. You know, you make a decent argument based on the text, but that's just not how we do things here. You know, okay. and at the, the the meeting where this is alleged to have happened, you know, the, um, the, the Raja who presided over it um, is supposed to have, um, you know, driven home his point by trying to, by serving mutton, uh, to the, the pundits who, you know, the sort of assembled pundits there when they objected and said, you know, uh, what, what are we, we're not going to eat mutton. That's crazy. Like, what are you doing? And he says, well, show me in the, in the Shastras where it says you can't eat mutton. And they say, well, it doesn't say in the Shastras you can't eat mutton. It's just, you know, it's not done. And he says, yeah, see, it's not done. Same thing with widow remarriage. And so I think, again, we have to take into account, you know, all of these, these kinds of factors that people use in, in justifying, um, you know whatever their their social program is, um, without you know really I think with, without getting too bogged down in uh, a strict interpretation of what does the text say because people will find texts that say what they want them to say, um, or they will you know people are are quite um, ingenious in this regard and this is what we do as humans as we as we um, we take these resources and, and use them, we fit them to our current circumstances and our current agendas. Um, so I wouldn't want to pin it on texts. Also, you know, in the, in the case of, you know, of Hinduism and, um, and a lot of these uh, similar traditions, there's no, you know, you can always adduce a different text, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if you find some uh, provision that you don't like in Manu, well, you know, maybe there's something in the Puranas that says otherwise, or you go to the Tantras, um, which many people, um, especially, you know, uh, coming out of the, the later medieval period, um, also adduce as, you know, as a form, uh, at least a smriti, um if not shruti. So, uh, you know, you can go to the tantras and find, you know, things that will explicitly contradict what you find, uh, maybe, in some of these older sources. So, you know, with, with as many texts as there are uh, available to um, to, you know, anyone who can sort of read uh, a, a bit of Sanskrit anyway, um, mm-hmm. you can make really sort of whatever case uh, one wants. And, and you only have to look to someone like, you know, Ram Roy to see that kind of thing in action. Um, you know, he argues against many of the um, the pieties of his time, and he backs everything up um, with, with recourse to some kind of scripture. You know, whether people, you know, clearly a lot of the pundits at the time were, um, you know, would contest that, but we, we can't blame everything uh on texts and certainly um people don't uh, texts are just a resource i guess is is the main thing i mean to say here
0: okay So, so so in a way you can you can agree that you i mean in a way it's 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 a bit of both that you know it's you know you can use your text and the social and you know social social and political conditions to uh you know justify the regressive like i was wondering whether the current like i mean current regressive practices or you know the modern uh regressive practices are uh, are, are was 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 mainly because of economic conditions, or it's just the uh you know it's it's it's
1: both like what you say is it's a bit a bit of both. Um. Well, I mean, so which which practices do you have in mind? My, my um, I guess what I would probably be inclined to say off the um, my suspicion would be in most of these cases that there are uh that there. Are particular rationales for particular practices, it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be necessarily so easy as saying, um, you know, everything that is, uh, you know, not sort of um, in keeping with, uh, with contemporary, um, you know, uh, sort of, uh, how would we say it sort of with sensibilities that I gather, like you and I probably uh, share to some degree, that, that all of those things, you know, have the same uh, reasons behind them. I think there's probably, um, you know, we would take it on a case by case basis. But in, in a general sense, what, what sort of practices do you have in mind?
0: I mean, untouchability, for example, and in general, the, a lot of casteist praxis, practices, apart from the untouchability. And, you know, and then there is a whole uh, uh, practice of uh, the sexist practices and all those things, like is it those kind of things.
1: Right. Um, yeah. So I mean, clearly there are one can could adduce uh, textual support for those things uh, if um, if that were desired, um, and the converse is also true. Um, right. When there are very um, progressive uh, that is by sort of current um, thinking, very progressive standard. Uh, ideas that one can also find in, in many hindu texts sort of universal humanistic ideas are, are also very easy to come by um you know patriarchy i think is well that's just sort of a global standard that you know is still um that we all still uh, reckon with to one uh, one degree or another nice. um that that is by no means unique to hinduism that's um that's the world over as far as i can tell some small hunter-gatherer groups notwithstanding perhaps but um yeah i think you know that stuff is there in the text but there's also there are voices of critique um that are also there from uh from a very early point so you know i think it's it comes down to to what um one wants to emphasize it i wouldn't i'm not i wouldn't be in a hurry to um to want to say that you know uh that we could blame, you know, Hinduism with a capital H, for necessarily any of these things, because there have always been, so far as uh, as I can tell, or I mean, uh, if not always, there have there have usually been uh, people who would identify with these traditions and operating within these traditions who have offered critiques of them. Um, so I mean, there's a there's a way in which I suspect a lot of it is. Um, is a is just a kind of a cultural uh, inertia, right? It's a, it's harder to change things than to let them carry on as they have been, um, and then especially once you have power entrenched within certain communities, they're gonna they're not going to be in a hurry to give it up, um, even if on some level maybe they think that that that, that might be what they uh, would like to do in a perfect circumstance, right? But you know, do am I really going to give up you know sort of my own spot at university? Um, you know, so that it can go to a reservation uh, for some of the group, even if I think maybe that, you know, that that's what would, ha- that what would happen in a just world. But, you know, when it's you, <laughs> then, uh, you know, people tend to protect their, they tend to act pretty self-interestedly. Um, so, I mean, I, I would chalk these kinds of things up to, to sort of basic human nature and, um, and to uh, just sort of power protecting its own, its own interests more so than, than trying to pin it on the tradition as such
0: mm-hmm. okay and uh, i I'll, I'll go to one more question like uh, is is there is there a caste angle to the interpretation of uh, to 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 the text which are you know mostly in sanskrit right you know the text the hindu text uh, are mostly in sanskrit is, is there a caste angle to that that you know a certain caste like probably brahmins you know were the one who were uh, uh Writing those things, and you know, because mm. there is a because we don't we don't see much about uh, the Pali. I think if I'm not wrong, you know, the Buddhist uh, scriptures. Uh,
1: so is 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 there a caste angle there? Um, I mean, if by caste angle do you mean are the vast majority of these texts uh, written by uh, Brahmin men? I think that is that is almost certainly the case um, as far as Sanskrit, uh, at least pre-modern Sanskrit is concerned. Um, we can probably infer from that, that in most cases, you know, that's, that's going to, uh, you know, by default uh, advance, uh, the particular sort of point of view, class interests, caste interests, etc., uh, gendered interests of the people who are writing the texts. Um, but you know, it's not always the case, even in, in the Upanishads, there's a lot of, a lot of the Upanishads, uh, claim to be, uh, the, written by Kshatriyas. Mm. Uh, Um Specifically, you know, there's a lot of it's framed as, you know, this is secret knowledge that was kept among the Kshatriyas and the Brahmins didn't know it, and that's why it's just sort of coming out now. Um, you know, you also see in these texts, uh, I think there's a, a sense in which um, uh, and Nathan McGovern has written about this a little bit, that the, the sense of who was a Brahmin is also uh, maybe a, a bit more fluid um, in a lot of these earlier uh, sources as well. So we, we might uh, question as he does um, whether whether what it meant to be a Brahman at the time of the writing of, of the Upanishads or in the time of the sort of early Buddhist sources for instance whether that was in fact something that, that had to do specifically with um, with sort of your parentage or, you know, the sort of commensality and endogamy, so the, the anthropological ways of talking about this, right? We, you know, with whom did you eat and with whom did you intermarry, that that those were the markers of who is a Brahmin, You know, there's a, um, if you take a certain reading of these texts, um, there is some sense that uh, it seems like a um, that the Buddhist texts would be very explicit about it and say, well, the one who restrains his senses and who, you know, is always truthful and so forth and so on, that person is a Brahman. And it would stand to reason then that, you know, if you do those things, then you are a Brahmin. And so when we think that um, we, we should also, I suppose, um, ask whether those categories are as stable as what um, we think that they are. Uh, Nicholas Dirks has talked about this as well with regard to a lot of these, the caste categories, that a lot of this, um, it, was a, it was somewhat more fluid, it seems like, um, in the period before and um, previous to the colonial period a lot of these sort of caste categories, as we understand them now, got hardened in a way by the censuses and things like that, mm-hmm. um, such that, you know, there were times when, uh, you know, again, I go back to the 18th century, and uh, because it's kind of my um, wheelhouse, but where, you know, a, a chiist would be considered a Chhatria in North Bengal, um, and a Shudra in uh, in sort of south or central sort of the Rar, uh, region. Um, and it was, it was, again, it was a matter of sort of local Uh, local custom and interpretation. Um, And so uh, these categories as well have cast, not to say that there haven't been, um, you know, pretty clearly always some people on the low end of the um, of the scale um, who were, you know, systematically disadvantaged um, by uh, the sort of Varnasrama system. Um, But that, you know, for people within this within the system, um, there was certainly more it was more fluid in some ways than than what uh, one might think and that there was room for a kind of upward mobility one thinks also of like the various shudra you know proudly sort of shudra kings that you find in the in the deccan plateau um in the later uh, modern period um this is a, a narayanarao and david shulman have written about this in a book called symbols of substance where they talk about these these kings who are you know they're they're, they're shudras and they, and they make no Attempt to present themselves as you know, Kshatriyas, as if you know, a classical reading of, of Hindu kingship would say, Well, the king needs to be Kshatriya, right? We have these sort of varna um, categories and strict ways that they correlate to particular roles in society, um, and that just hasn't always been the case. People are creative and they and they work with um, the categories that they've got and they, they rework them and reinterpret them and, um, and make uh lives for themselves and build traditions based on their current circumstances
0: okay i mean the other part you know what you spoke about how it was written but is, is the interpretation also we can uh say that it's, uh, it's it, there's a cast angle or it's as you said you know it depends on region to region you know community to community uh,
1: how do you mean the, the interpretation in this case
0: interpretation, interpretation of those texts like uh you know all the texts you were talking about you know is that is that also certainly like you know the, it was there was a certain ownership from a certain cast or it was uh, you know it was across it was available across for interpretation uh, uh, is it
1: mm. yeah i think i understand i mean i mean that the again it comes to part of the, the issue here is how mm, how what do the text represent versus what people may have done um, okay. so mm. You know, in a lot of these texts, you know, you do have the sort of, you know, something that will happen in the kind of preamble um, that will say essentially who has the, you know, the adhikara to read the text, right? Who has, what sorts of people have the, the right or the qualifications to to read the text? And usually, again, this winds up being either limited to just Brahmins or limited to just twice born. That is like the, the first three, that is the Brahmin Kshatriyas and Vaishyas, it might say that that those people are uh, are the only people who have the particular uh, avikara for the text, whether that's um, how things actually played out uh, is, is perhaps another matter, right? I mean, again, I work with a lot of sort of tantric texts, and those um, these texts will often also say things like, well, you have to have had the, the sort of didikshat to, to, to read this text. Um, but, you know, in practice, we know that clearly that's not the case, because we see people from other traditions quoting the texts that in theory they should never have read in the first place, right? Or, you know, personally, I do it all the time. I don't have the Diksha to read these texts, right? Or I don't have the Adhikara to read, um, you know, a lot of these sort of, uh, you know, Advaita texts are also the sort of li- supposed to be limited uh, to, you know, to Brahmins and so forth. Um, so th- these texts circulated in certain ways and and people, I think, um, would share them and interpret them um in ways that the the authors of the text may not have always intended. Um, so I think, um, again, it comes down to how, how much do we think that what the texts are saying is descriptive of the way that things were versus how much do we think what they're saying is the way that the, in the world of the text that they wish things were. I mean, I think that's a lot of the case when it comes to the Dharma Shastras, especially. Um, I don't think they're really describing a world wherein You know, if a a Shudra uh, steals a loaf of bread, um, you know, he has to do a prayaschita or something. But if a Brahmin does it, he gets banished from the town forever. Right. I mean, Mm. they're probably the the policies, you know, probably didn't operate like that. It's it's probably the case. Um, I Mm. mean, speculating here. Right. But I'm imagining in in a more real life, a realistic situation um, that this is kind of what the author of the text sort of uh, envisions that the world should be like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in in real life, you know, that it's going to come down to, you know, who's got the ear of the King and like, who is in, whose family is invested in in what in the town? Can you really afford to banish that person or not? Right. These are, um, they're all, they're going to be all kinds of, you know, real life concerns that would get in the way um, just as they do nowadays um, of enforcing what would appear to be the law. I mean, imagine if you read the constitution and thought that that was how things actually worked, right? You know the laws are only as effective as the people who enforce them, and the people who enforce them have you know relationships, local relationships, and they have their own interests. and so I think this this is going to apply to um to the vast majority of these kinds of uh, classical texts as well. they're um, they're an ideal. They're someone's ideal of of how life should be, and not always um, for better or worse, uh, they don't always translate to how things were.
0: Mm, okay. About Neidan McGovern, right? Like uh, in his uh, mm. in his text, he talks about Brahmanical traditions, talks about both the Brahmanical and non-Brahminical traditions, and how Brahmanical tradition was kind of a reaction to the uh, non-Brahminical tradition, He's, which he says, uh, "Srama Sramanic," like you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he also speaks about Buddhism, you know. Uh, uh, you know, interchanging between Buddhism and Jainism, the philosophy and the way of life, you know, that kind of like, uh, can you expand that, uh, expand expand a bit on that?
1: Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, I think, first of all, I can, I very much uh, would recommend, um, recommend his book, uh, The the Snake and the Mongoose, it's called. Um, and, you know, he does some really interesting work uh, also on uh, Hinduism in Thailand. Um, uh for for an ep, uh an edited uh, journal issue that uh should be coming out relatively soon um on Hindu Buddhist interactions uh I've been working with him and some others on um but to, uh, you know I think his 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 primary um argument there if I can um sort of uh do the the crayon version of it um mm-hmm. is that uh is sort of what I was suggesting earlier that you know up through the period of you know the the later upanishads and, and early buddhist um, uh, tradition uh, where it seems like you know these were all thinkers as, that were sort of part of a a common milieu you know it's not as if the buddhists were in sort of one forests and the people who were you know uh, working with the the upanishadic texts and, and composing those and things like that were somewhere else right they they're clearly and the jains were somewhere else altogether right these people are all interacting with each other. They're debating. They're exchanging ideas. We see like clear influences back and forth. Um, so that you know, McGovern's suggestion is that it's not only is it not um, necessarily clear that that there were um, that there was a clear quote unquote Brahmanical tradition that was opposed to the Buddhist tradition during this point, but that gradually what we see is um, a consolidation during this during this time period. Um, and in the early uh, sort of uh, Dharma Shastra works that are coming out of this time period of the notion that that a Brahman is effectively uh, the son or daughter of a Brahman. That it makes it a hereditary category um, as opposed to a category to which one could aspire. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying, you know, the Brahman restrains his senses and is truthful and so on. And if one does that, then you become a Brahman that, you know, you have to be born a Brahman in order for the, um to have that. You know, so he, you know, he goes through different texts and, and tries to uh, to say, well, what if we don't just sort of project the categories as we know them now back onto the text? So we take the text sort of on their own terms. What it looks like is happening is that that is a um, a gradual process, and part of the way that I think he suggests that we can see that. Other people have have uh, made this kind of an argument a little bit in the past. Um, is the way in which you know moksha, the liberation, gets added on to these purusharthas. So you know you have these goals of human life, and in the earlier texts, you know the goals of human life are you know that you should um, pursue um, you know, sort of wealth and power and things like that. Artha, right? You should you know have a job and um, and try to provide uh, for yourself and your family and things like that. You should pursue kama, you know pleasure in its various forms, aesthetic as as well as sexual and other kinds of pleasure, the the good things in life. And you should pursue your dharma right you should do your duty to your family and to society and so forth and to the gods so you know in early texts you have these three goals in life and after after a point um there is added to that um this category of moksha the pursuit of liberation which was not there before and we see also in the the sense of um you know the sort of stages of life right of the student to the householder to the sort of uh you know the, the vanaprastha, the, the retirement in the forest kind of category um, that you know to that is added this kind of um, ascetic uh, fourth stage right so that, that this is he argues a way that um, and others have, have suggested too that this is a way that we can actually see a, a Brahmanical tradition that's sort of coalescing and trying to find ways to incorporate these shamanical um, aspects into a you know into its own sort of scheme and you um, so, I mean, I think his, his argument is, is really one that is a, um, I think is pretty, it's pretty, it's useful, you know, in its own terms, but also in general, as a sort of a, 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 case, um, a case study for, for always taking uh, the time to, to really think about and define the terms that we're dealing with um, when, especially when we go to sort of pre-modern um, sources, rather than assuming that a word means what we think it means now yeah Um, just go back and say okay well it says you know this is a thing that's restricted to brahmins well actually who were brahmins at this point right we don't we can't just assume that you know brahmins are people you know named ayur and pratacharya right that's um those are um that's a modern read on that it could be the case but you know we want to look for for evidence that that's in fact the case um or or see perhaps you know if there's some other reading that makes more sense with the the materials that we have um that we're dealing with
0: okay one one more one last question i have which is uh, you know you are a scholar and academic and you are in a times where hindu is the major force you know in this country and you know is it is it challenging for you to you know do your research and you know to to basically interact with this uh, world while and also and also you know being uh, being, being an uh, you, you're not being an indian how does that uh, how does it play into the how does it play
1: into the whole uh, experience hmm. yeah um it is to this uh, to this point anyway so far um i haven't actually had people have only ever been um uh very sort of uh, welcoming and and helpful um to me so far um i mean you know the, the occasional um running with people but you know as uh, <laughs> i guess as probably um uh, you'll you'll have noticed and, and perhaps um, perhaps to your frustration if so my apologies you know I, I tend to to approach these things you know as because i'm an outsider i tend to approach them um uh from a very um, i tend to be pretty hesitant to 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 interject my own uh uh, personal opinions and critiques, um, in a lot of these circumstances. So that's, that's one thing that is to say, I think, you know, it, it's not my culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a long tradition, which I would not necessarily like to be a part of, of, you know, uh, you know, white, uh, Indologists, uh, banging on about caste and things like that. And, uh, and trying to, uh, to adopt a morally superior standpoint to that, which I don't think is um, will is really justified, because most of those white Indologists come from places that also have, you know, vast sort of racial stratification, and this, the patriarchy is, you know, omnipresent and things like that. Right. So we're not we're not coming from a a place to assume a moral high ground to, to criticize these things per se. Um, and for the large part, you know, I'm writing for an audience or, you know, uh, if I'm in a classroom, you know, I'm dealing with an audience of people who are not familiar with Indian culture and who come to it with a, a particular sort of baggage from these, if anything, baggage from these kind of earlier Indologists, right? Mm-hmm. So I tend to take it um, more as my my goal to to get them to, to open and question and, and instead of uh, to instinctively to condemn, to sort of say, okay, well, how is our society maybe also like that? And how, you know, where are the voices of critique that we find at, at various points, you know, to kind of, um, to inculcate a particular way of thinking about these things. So on the one hand I should say, you know, uh, especially in India, but in general, you know, I, I try to maintain a kind of, uh, a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of, uh, um, you know, rose-colored glasses, if you will, mm-hmm. around some of these things to sort of, to emphasize the the aspects that I think are more uh, commonly overlooked and maybe that are uh, perhaps uh, more, um, yeah, just to complicate matters, you know, rather than to, um, to assume a, a kind of moral uh, attitude towards it um, in that context. But uh, secondarily, you know, I guess in my own research, and this is, a, this is a, a self-criticism, I guess I should also say, um, I haven't run into this problem because by and large, um, you know, my work has been with, uh, you know, Bengalis in in contexts where people, um, you know, I don't assume that we all, certainly we don't all share the same uh, sort of political sensibilities per se, but there's a, a certain, there's a way in which for the time being and, um, you know, may it stay so if, uh, yeah. if at all possible, you know, Bengal hasn't yet, you know, fallen, uh, thoroughly, uh, into the kind of hardcore communalist, uh, politics, at least not in such a, an overt way as we find in some other places. And so, um, I, I ha- haven't had really any, um, any difficulty, uh, in terms of carrying out my own research so far. Um, yeah. And um, I'm certainly very, very glad of it uh, that usually prevents, especially uh, rancorous uh, political conversations, at least, you know, in my presence and, and people usually have, uh, like I said, have been extremely helpful. I haven't, I haven't really run into uh, difficulties. Uh, thanks. I, I hope it's, 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 it's the same for you, you know, in future <laughs> also. Uh,
0: yeah, actually th- thanks for the conversation. This was really great. You know, a lot of things uh, to unpack and, uh, I hope to have you again. You know, it, it was great conversation. Thanks for joining me.
1: Likewise, yeah. I, uh, I hope it. I hope it wasn't too frustrating that my answer to most everything was, well, it's complicated. You have to take it case by case. But <laughs> that's. Um. Um. I, ho- I hope it's somewhat useful.
0: No, it, it's it's quite, quite quite useful, you know. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining me. That's it from this week's episode of Grasshopper in the Art. Hope to see you again next week. Bye.